Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This week, the very special spring break essay episode. No, this is not an essay about spring break. It is a show on which I am reading essays I have previously written because we are on spring break. We're not on spring break this week, so don't come to my house and try to rob it. We're actually back from spring break. The spring break was last week, and I didn't have the opportunity to interview a guest, and that's why we're reading these essays. Fear not, friends, because these essays are very relevant to the things we talk about here on Crazy Money, and those things are money, happiness, work, and meaning. No, just because money is in the name, that does not mean that this is a traditional personal finance show. We do not talk about how to make a million dollars, how to beat the market, or how to save money by clipping coupons. We explore the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning to figure out how money can help us live the kind of life we actually want to live instead of assuming that if we make a gazillion dollars, our life will fall into place perfectly because that's not what happens. On this week's episode, we're going to read two different essays from last year that I wrote on my Medium channel, which is paulollinger.medium.com. If you are not following that yet, you should because occasionally I write some things that are relevant to uh, somebody like you. Let's start, friends, with an essay about what I believe is a pandemic of its own in our country, which is the fact that people put far too much faith in the restorative powers of money. This essay is called Money Isn't What You're Missing, What I've Learned After Years of Studying Money and Happiness. And that's right. That's what I do right here on the Crazy Money Podcast. Here we go. In the oft-quoted climax of the 1996 blockbuster Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise stares through teary eyes at Renee Zellweger, the love interest he'd almost let slip through his distracted, metaphorical hands. His last chance pitch to win her back, you complete me. This sincere vulnerability captured her heart and five Oscar nominations despite, or perhaps because of, the fact that this revelation perpetuates a prevalent but childish fantasy that each of us is an incomplete person lacking only a tiny gift from the universe to become our fully realized selves. I remember watching this scene in the theater, I literally do remember this, by the way, and thinking, what a load of Hollywood fairy tale crap. Yet in one area of my life, I applied Jerry's flawed logic. I thought money would complete me. Ever since I was a boy, I dreamed of being rich. Part of this fixation came from a desire to avoid the financial stress I sensed in my parents as they raised their six children. Another part of me wanted the material things we didn't have, like a big house, shiny cars, and an Atari 2600. But most of all, I had mistakenly linked wealth to importance, and I believed that money would cringe, make me whole. Fast forward a couple of decades when, as an early employee of Facebook, I earned millions in the company's initial public offering. Thinking I had it made, I quit my job with no plan. I simply walked away from my career at age 42, figuring, I'm rich. All my problems are solved. I could not have been more wrong. Since then, a big part of my life's work has been to explore what wealth means, how it changes us, how it leaves us the same. I'm not just talking to millionaires here. This message is for anyone who is breaking their neck trying to earn money at the expense of more meaningful things like our relationships and good work. I'm not going to lie. The first three months of my new financial reality were fantastic. I took some great trips, exercised like crazy, and read many of the books that had been gathering dust on my nightstand. Most refreshingly, I lived those 90 days without the constant stress of sales quotas, office politics, and the zero-sum Darwinism of coach class business travel. But before long, I found myself feeling, well, lonely. I also developed the nauseating feeling that I had made a colossal mistake. 
Not only had I walked away from a lucrative job at an exciting company, but I had also detached myself from the brilliant and funny colleagues who had kept me on my toes. Now, as part of a team to help solve our clients' problems, I filled my days refining my golf swing and grilling a lot of chicken. Unoccupied and omnipresent, I drove myself and my wife nuts. One thing was certain. Early retirement wasn't sexy or fulfilling. I didn't feel important, and I definitely didn't feel complete. I had gotten everything I had ever wanted, but I just felt like a rich loser. It was all very confusing. So I searched for answers. I read dozens of books about wealth and happiness. I sought out wisdom from the Buddha, the Gospel, and the Susie Orman. I eventually synthesized this quest in my now two-year-old podcast. It's now three years old. Crazy Money, that you're listening to right now, by the way. And my podcast, Crazy Money, in which I explore the connection between money and contentment with top thinkers on the subject, some patterns started to emerge. I learned about the hedonic treadmill, which is the process of mental adaptation by which we return to a base state of happiness after an exceptionally good event, like winning the lottery, or a very bad one, like losing one's legs in a car accident. And by the way, note that we assume that winning the lottery is good and that losing one's legs is bad. Not that it's good either, necessarily. Thinking, I'm not a lottery winner, I earned my money. I stumbled upon a Credit Suisse white paper concluding that professionals who stopped working post-windfall are often blindsided by the resulting dislocation and feelings of loss and sadness and difficulty in finding new fulfilling work. Still, I thought, I don't deserve to complain. I've got it made, right? Then I interviewed the well-known financial therapist Brad Klontz, who works with ultra-high-net-worth clients. I asked him, somewhat facetiously, what billionaires could possibly have to worry about. He chuckled at my sarcasm, reminded me that the super-rich are still human beings, and added, when you are already wealthy and you are grappling with your own imperfections, you can't indulge in the fantasy that money will make everything better. I'm going to read that again because it's worth thinking about. When you are already wealthy and you are grappling with your own imperfections, you can't indulge in the fantasy that money will make everything better. That is the crux of the mistake we all make around money, by the way. If I make money, I will be okay. Said more simply, money won't fix you. You have to fix you. And until you disavow yourself of the notion that wealth or six-pack abs or Renee Zellweger, will make you feel complete, you will be chasing a pipe dream. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that money doesn't matter. It does. Solvency is glorious and a goal to which we should all commit ourselves. But stacking Benjamins up to the ceiling will not change how you feel when you look in the mirror. It's comforting to attribute feelings of incompleteness to something we haven't yet attained. But as long as we do so, we avoid taking responsibility for the shortcomings that keep us from feeling like our best selves. What most of us are missing isn't wealth, it's perspective. It's the acceptance that completion doesn't arrive when your checking account hits a specific number or when you win another person's heart. Completion arrives when we accept the good things we already have going for us and when we forgive ourselves for not being perfectly whole in the first place. That doesn't make for very quotable dialogue in Oscar-winning movies, but it does lead to a much more satisfying life. The end. What's fun about these is that, to me, is that these essays kind of are mini versions of the biggest lessons I'm taking away from the podcast. And there's a lot of them, but I think this one really, really matters. And sadly, it's a very small number of people 
who get to understand that getting to a point where you can't blame your lack of happiness on lack of money proves that money doesn't deliver what we as a society believe it will. And so my hope with the Crazy Money podcast is dispel that feeling from all those people that feel that way, that are putting way too much faith in something that will not bear out for them in the long run. All right, that's the first one. One of the reasons we feel this way about money is because money is what's called in psychology a positional good. Maybe it's economics and psychology. A positional good. It is a good that we aspire to have more of because obtaining it improves our status within the social hierarchy, or so we believe. And so what happens is as we acquire more of it, we start hanging out with people that have more money thus making our amount of money relatively less impressive from a positional standpoint. The net of that is that there's no arriving. So if you're trying to make a bunch of money because you think it's going to improve your status, it probably will. And then you'll start hanging out with people that have more money and you're going to be like, oh, I have a million dollars, but I want a lake house because my neighbor has one. I need $5 million. And then you get 5 million and you're like, Oh, I have 5 million bucks, but you know what? That's not rich. What rich is, is people who have a jet. So I need $50 million. And then you get 50 and it's a yacht or it's something or whatever. There's no arriving. So the only way to win is to not keep score. And as you might've guessed, this next piece is called stop keeping score. How to quit measuring success by net worth, fancy titles, or TikTok views. This isn't in the essay, right? But I haven't figured TikTok out yet. It is not an intuitive tool for a 50, almost 53-year-old person. I got email down. When email can make me go viral, I'm going to be like the biggest influencer on the planet because I write some good-ass emails, friends. Bullet points, formatting, moderate but effective use of italics. I'm pretty awesome at the email. Stop keeping score. How to quit measuring success by net worth, fancy titles, or TikTok views. A few years ago, when I was looking for a new workout routine, my wife suggested that I take a spin class at a place called Flywheel. The last time I had biked en masse was at a fancy California health club. So Flywheel's spandex clientele, neon lighting, and ebullient instructor were not new to me. But one thing did stand out. Behind the coach hung a flat panel screen displaying each rider's name, bike number, and total power points. It was a scoreboard. Giving it little thought, I spent the next 45 minutes just trying to follow the leader's directions. But that first session ended with my pulse racing, my t-shirt dripping, and my name near the bottom of the list. Over subsequent classes, I became obsessed with moving up the ranks. Eventually, I cracked the code. To score high, one had to pick one of the fast bikes, fast in quotation marks, ignore the instructor, and do nothing but pedal like crazy. That is, you don't go stand up and sit down at the instructor's instructions. You ride your own race. The scoreboard soon replaced the fitness benefits as my main motivator. 30 seconds into a ride, I'd see Cycle Fella rise above Paul O69, that's me, and think, not today, Cycle Fella. Then I'd spend the rest of the class proving I was better than that guy, even on the days when my body was begging me to take it easy. My whole experience reminded me of how scoreboards drive our behavior in many other areas of our lives. Even though Teddy Roosevelt reminded us comparison is the thief of joy, consciously or not, we design our days around improving our positions on invisible ladders that supposedly quantify success. 
When I was a kid, I'd throw a fit if one of my many siblings got a bigger piece of cake than I did. Today, I look in my neighbor's driveway and can't help but evaluate my life based in part on what I see parked there. Escaping this pattern isn't easy, but it can be done. On my podcast, Crazy Money, that you're listening to, you're soaking in it right now, I spoke with Yoshi and Diana Sadiq, the hosts of a podcast about intentional living called F the Joneses. Years ago, Yoshi's work as a consultant, Diana's as a doctor, had earned them fancy cars and a big house with a pool. But they both yearned to do something more creative with their careers. They realized they had spent years trying to keep up with the Joneses, and that while they'd reached the spot on the ladder that they thought would bring them happiness, the life they'd created just wasn't working for them. As Yoshi told me, one day we decided, F the Joneses. They traded Diana's Mercedes SUV for a Honda minivan, moved into a smaller home, and began living on their own terms. For Yoshi, the most important part of the process of taking control was defining who we are, he told me. It's a critical insight. We define who we are by picking or not picking the metrics to which we assign value. Left to their own devices, our brains will measure success by our net worth or TikTok views because those things are far easier to quantify than the amount of creativity, joy, and connection we experience every day. Try this. Instead of counting the number of friends you have on Facebook, count the number of meaningful conversations you've had in real time this month. Rather than comparing your results against your neighbor's efforts, set a personal goal and track your performance over time. People may judge your decisions. It's human nature, Diana said on a recent episode of F the Joneses, but guess what? It has nothing to do with you. That is your neighbor's efforts. Rather than relentlessly grinding out in your fancy spin class, Maybe it would be more satisfying for you to pedal to the beat of the music, or better yet, take your bike outside and cruise around with the people you love. Your name might not end up at the top of the leaderboard, but finishing first is not the same as having enjoyed the ride. The end. Let's enjoy the ride, friends. Happy spring break. I hope wherever you are, the weather is warming up, that you're getting outside more, that you're spending time with the people you love. Hopefully you've gotten to take a trip someplace interesting. Now that COVID has mellowed out a little bit, wishing you a wonderful spring. We'll be back next week. Take care.